Now, the top of the hour on the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn presents the Green News Report. Humanity has become a weapon of mass extinction. UN Biodiversity Summit seeks to reverse the rapid decline of nature. International Olympic Committee grapples with global warming impact on winter games. Plus, renewable energy will overtake coal by 2025, report says. Really? Yeah. All of those fascinating stories and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. There are new rules to prevent any uh, methane leaks. Here at home, but yet we're all we're allowing them to drill and continue uh, to process oil down in Venezuela. Yeah, you tell them Fox News. Where does America get off allowing other people to drill for oil in their own country? This is your Green News Report. Okay, Tessie Doyen, it seems like every... Well, two or four years now, we're worried about having enough snow at Winter Olympics. Is that what we're worrying about again? Oh, yes, we are. Okay. The International Olympic Committee has delayed selection of the host city for the 2030 Winter Games while it considers ways to overhaul the Winter Games amid the accelerating impacts of man-made global warming, which has caused widespread declines in global snow and ice cover. The IOC is considering proposals to establish a rotating pool of host cities that would have to meet temperature criteria and be able to reliably sustain venues for snow competition. So one of the problems is there's only a few venues at this point that are actually cold enough to be able to host a Winter Olympics? To be able to consistently host the Winter Olympics, and that is a growing problem. Hmm. A new report by the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development warns that if governments fail to act swiftly to cut emissions, overshooting the 1.5 degrees Celsius temperature target in the Paris Climate Agreement may, quote, push the Earth over several tipping points, leading to irreversible and severe changes in the climate system. The report warns that if triggered, those tipping point impacts would, quote, cascade through socioeconomic and ecological systems, leading to severe effects on human and natural systems and challenging humanity's ability to adapt. In Montreal, the UN Biodiversity Conference kicked off this week, billed as one of the most important events for life on Earth. World governments hope to hash out a major treaty to reverse the decline of nature and to conserve the species and ecosystems on which all life depends and the benefits they provide. Okay, that that does sound somewhat important. A major target is to conserve at least 30% of Earth's land and sea habitats by 2030. UN Secretary General General Antonio Guterres warned that degraded ecosystems will cost the world $3 trillion annually by 2030, and he bluntly called out humanity's insatiable appetite for economic growth that has polluted the land, water, and air with chemicals, pesticides, and plastics. That guy has nothing but good news. We are treating nature like a toilet, and ultimately we are committing suicide by proxy. Because the loss of nature and biodiversity comes with a steep human cost. A cost we measure in lost jobs, 
hunger, diseases, and deaths. Told you he's nothing but chuckles. Well, the biggest question at the conference is who will pay for it? Poorer nations and indigenous communities now harbor most of the world's remaining biodiversity, but they must also find ways to grow their economies and fight poverty. But some good news. Global renewable power capacity is set to grow as much in the next five years as it has grown over the past two decades. Really? As governments accelerate the shift to cheap, clean, stable renewable energy driven by Russia's war in Ukraine that caused fossil fuel prices to soar. The new forecast by the UN-affiliated International Energy Agency projects that renewable energy will become the world's top source of electricity in the next three years. Solar capacity is poised to surpass natural gas and coal within five years and become the largest energy source in the world. But the IEA report and others all tell the same story. Renewables are transforming the world, but they are not doing it fast enough. According to the IEA, the world needs to deliver at least a quarter more growth in renewables than is currently projected to be on track to limit man-made global warming to no more than 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial temperatures. And finally, this week marked the first ever U.S. auction of offshore wind leases to develop commercial-scale floating wind farms in the deep waters off the California coast. The auction raised an astonishing $757 million, mostly from European countries that have expertise with floating wind farms. Experts say the potential for the technology is huge in areas of strong wind off America's coasts. Very cool. For much more on all of those stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Everyone knows it's Please help progressive voices support the Green News Report by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Rauschenbusch broadcasting this week from Washington, D.C. Anti-Semitism, it's a system just like white supremacy that has been built by people for their own reasons and can be dismantled. In recent years, anti-Semitic incidents, whether in-person attacks, vandalism, or online hate, have been increasing. The level of vitriol unleashed by recent changes at Twitter alongside pronouncements by politicians and public figures threatens to desensitize Americans to the kind of anti-Jewish rhetoric and violence that would have been unthinkable just a year ago. This week, we'll have the first in a series of conversations about this deeply troubling trend. I'll talk with Rabbi Jason Kimmelman-Block, Washington Director of Ben the Ark Jewish Action, and Isaac Luria, Program Director at the Nathan Cummings Foundation. There is a lot of concern that creating broad speech or First Amendment exceptions from anti-discrimination law could really blow open the door to a new era of legal segregation in a way that I think would harm in some respects the thing that this case was purported to protect, which is the beliefs of people of faith. It's been a very long year at the Supreme Court. While few rulings have been surprising for a newly right-leaning SCOTUS, several have redefined life for a great number of Americans. 
We'll review 2022 with Elizabeth Reiner Platt, Director of the Law, Rights, and Religion Project at Columbia University, and Interfaith Alliance Director of Policy and Advocacy, Katie Joseph. You can hear State of Belief on the radio and get the podcast on Apple Podcasts and all other podcast platforms. Every week, I will be in conversation with some of the most fascinating and impactful civic and religious leaders across the nation. You won't want to miss it. Please subscribe today. State of Belief Radio is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation, I really want to thank you. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join in that work at interfaithalliance.org. And now, on to my first guest. Rabbi Jason Kimmelman Block is Washington Director of Ben the Ark Jewish Action. Thank you for being with us today. Thanks so much, Paul. Great to be here. So maybe you can just set us, um, maybe you can just set the stage a little bit. Like, where, what? do we know about the current state of the rise of anti-Semitism? Get, let's get as specific as we can so we know what we're really talking about. What, what are the numbers that you might have and what are the ways that you're seeing it manifested that we should be paying special attention to? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, uh, it's important that you begin with the numbers um, because the whole conversation about numbers is actually a fairly complicated one. Sometime, hopefully in the next few weeks, we're expecting hate crimes data to come out from the FBI and they track data over time. And the fact is the data is really, really hard to get a finger on in terms of just hate crimes data. A, hate crimes data is classically and structurally underreported. Some police departments and some states even report zero hate crimes in their jurisdiction. So there, there are efforts, the Jabrar Higher Hate Act, which was passed uh, a little over a year ago, is seeking to rectify some of those issues. Uh, but there's also an issue where the hate crimes is tracked by police. And so there are many groups that are victims of hate crimes that may not feel safe going to the police. And so, Jewish community is multi-ethnic and multi-racial and is predominantly white. And so, you know, white people in this country are taught that police keep you safe. And so we're a little more likely to report hate crimes. Um, But what we're certainly seeing over the past at least five or six years is increasing violence towards Jewish communal institutions, as well as identifiably Jewish individuals as well as a culture where it seems that um, using anti-Semitism in a variety of ways, sometimes explicitly about Jews, but sometimes implicitly, where if you don't know the code, you don't actually know that like anti-Semitism is being deployed. And we're seeing that with more and more regularity. It seems like that's actually happening almost in a kind of, I hate to say it, but commonplace political rhetoric, you know, around yes. like George Soros, you know, the, I, maybe this is what you're talking like George Soros, like George Soros funded, which is almost like code for Jewish. Absolutely. Um, and, 
that's not like really super fringy anymore. Yes. But I think what you're saying is really important for all of us to remember around like how we get statistics is statistics have to be gathered from people who are feel confident enough to talk about what happened to them. And I think this goes across the board where people are like, oh, that's not worth me talking. I remember hearing someone say, oh, I got I just got yelled at because like people called me a like a terrible Jewish name. And I was like, oh, are you going to report it? And they were like, oh, no. You know, and I, and I was like, sure. Why not? You know, and they, they were just like, that's just not I didn't get hurt. And I'm sure. like, OK. You know, so I just think that it's really important that whatever numbers are coming out, even how bad they are, are not reflecting the full story of the experience of Jewish people in this country in 2022. Sure. And it's also, it's, it's important not to talk about anti-Jewish bigotry in isolation from other groups that are targeted by hate, as well as, you know, the fact that many Jews have intersecting identities, right? So if we look at anti-Black racism and, you know, what kind of daily experiences of racism, whether remarks or whether things that are more structural, like those don't get reported in hate crimes data, right? They often show up in health data in terms of higher rates of hypertension and all the, uh -huh. all the physical health impacts that people deal with when you're dealing with bigotry each and every day. And so I think it's really important to also, you mentioned, you know, the George Soros pieces, to acknowledge the political context in which this is taking place, that we have experienced in the past six years or so ideas that were once confined to the fringes of the far right that have, are now commonplace. So you mentioned George Soros, that trope of the shadowy, wealthy Jew who's pulling the strings behind People, you know, it, it was deployed during the Kavanaugh hearings when people were, uh -huh. you know, speaking out. People said, oh, well, those were just George Soros funded groups. It was deployed to deadly effect in the lead up to the 2018 midterm elections when far right and not even so far right figures on Fox News, but also in Congress, also from the White House, were trying to mobilize their base by whipping up a hysteria. You may remember about the caravan. Uh, there's oh, right. a caravan of migrants and it's an invasion. And there was a lot about George Soros funding this as if people who are trying to get a better life and fleeing to this country for safety would need to be manipulated in order to do that. You know, it's just absurd yeah. on its face. Yeah which culminated in the deadliest anti-Semitic massacre in American history, which, which was at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. There is a straight line between that political rhetoric and the violence. Yeah, I, I, there's an incident in my own family, the, the uh, Goldmark Affair. He was, a, he was a rancher in eastern Washington in the 60s, and he got targeted for being a communist Mm -hmm. And he was also like had the Goldmark name. He was technically not Jewish, but he was it was Jewish communism. So he got attacked politically and mm -hmm. really, really, really. And he won the libel suit, but it remained in the air. And then 20 years later, his, one of his sons was killed with his family in oh, Seattle gosh. because the guy said this is a communist Jewish plot. Right. 
So like these words, these tropes have real meaning for people and real violence and death can happen. So I just think like the stakes that we're dealing with are high and they linger and it's like it's fester and we just need to make clear. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what Ben the Ark and you and and your all the people you work with, which includes a, a wonderful set of people across groups, but what how you feel like we can we can all be mobilized in this way, and what kind of resources do you have at Ben the Ark that might be helpful for people? Absolutely, absolutely. And just one thing I wanted to say to follow up on the point that you just made. What a horrific story, uh, Paul. Yeah. Is um, is that. Those kind of attacks, especially with political valence that have their roots in anti-Semitism, don't just affect Jews and don't just harm Jews. They they harm the whole society and the whole political culture. The Red Scare, certainly a terrible chapter in American history, you know, was animated by anti-Semitism. The QAnon, this is a, this was completely connected with the Red Scare. The, the story exactly. I just told about my family exactly. that was a Red Scare story that kept on echoing. So that we're right. still. Feeling the effects of the red right. st- and scare, and you're talking about QAnon, which is QAnon a manifestation. Si- sim- similar thing, and which inspired, you know, violence, the violence of January 6th. So these things don't just get isolated to right. a particular community that's under attack. It infects the whole culture, and that, and that's how Ben the Ark is working to address uh, anti-Semitism. Is that we understand that it would be a mistake to just examine anti-Semitism on its own in isolation without understanding the broader political context and also the broader context of uh, who all is being targeted. What we, what we understand is that we're being targeted by a white nationalist movement that has its roots in sort of classic white supremacy, but is you know built for this particular moment and that we are one of many targets of the white nationalist movement. What we just saw in Colorado Springs, what we saw in Buffalo last year, you know, what what we unfortunately see over and over again, it's all part of the same violent political movement. Often people react to these, these horrific acts of violence and chalk it up to mental health, which, you know, is frankly, offensive to people who are experiencing real mental health issues. This is about a political movement that has its roots in violence. So one of the things that we do is our work around hate crimes and uh, around advocacy is always done in solidarity with other groups that are under attack. When the Biden administration had just been elected and during the transition, we made a series of recommendations to the incoming administration together with Muslim advocates and the Arab American Institute to make clear that we want solutions that will make a real impact and reduce the harm in all of the communities that are under attack. Right. I mean, if if we look at the last, as you said, six years or so, you know, the rise in um, vandalism and attacks on synagogues is paralleled with the rise in uh, vandalism and attacks in mosques. It's not merely a coincidence that that's happening at the same time. And, uh, and it's Correct. really, so I think that this, you know, th- this is so, so helpful. So going forward, like, let's, let's say that we all deploy. What would be a way that we can feel that we have been able to, 
you know, honestly, anti-Semitism has been happening for so many millennial that, that it's almost impossible to imagine it going away. But what would you hope for over the next four years, maybe 2025 or 2026? Um, the first thing I would say is I think it's important for us not to get into a framework where we feel like anti-Semitism or any specific form of bigotry is inevitable and will always be here and always come back. Anti-Semitism is a, it's a system just like white supremacy that has been built by people for their own reasons and can be dismantled. And so it's not part of the natural world. There is no, you know, you know, this is a system that was developed for specific reasons and at different times that is to the benefit of actors who are trying to use it, including in this political moment. So I think like, I wanna say that from the beginning. And so what needs to be done is we need to work together to dismantle it. And the way we're going to dismantle it is not by isolating anti-Semitism, but by dismantling the bigotries that are at the core of our society, American society, and going back, you know, we're part of Western society in general. I think in American society, we need to spend way more energy than we're spending right now thinking about anti-Black racism and how we deconstruct it. As long as anti-Black racism is such a core part of our culture and our systems, no group is safe. So I think that the more that all the targets of hate, whether it's Black, Latino, people with disabilities, LGBTQ community, Jewish community, and you know, it's important to say those aren't separate communities, they're all overlapping, right, right. Um, really need to continue to build a movement that has like an irresistible vision of a society where we can all fully thrive and be ourselves, right? And like, I think this is where, to me, the religious work comes in because what we're talking about is building, you know, in my language as a rabbi, building a, a society that recognizes uh, that we're all B'Tselem Elohim, that we're all created in the image of God and that we have infinite worth and value and dignity to be fully ourselves. Like that, that's the charge. And I know that that's kind of big and may feel amorphous, but the way we do that, you know, in the next four years is to get out of the mode of talking about each of these things in isolation, to get out of the mode of saying, well, you know, it's coming from everywhere. I, I think there's a both sides thing happening that says like, oh, we see, we see these things like on the right and then the left. Well, Yes, that's true. Just like we see anti-Black racism, you know, in progressive spaces as well as, and sexism, you know, in progressive spaces as well as in right-wing spaces. But we have to recognize, wait, who's benefiting from those hates? Who gets stronger when those bigotries get mainstreamed? And, and who gets weaker? And uh, who gets stronger are the people and the politicians who get their power from fear and division. 
Yeah. And so the I, way to I, overcome I, fear and division is yeah. to it's to be more in solidarity with each other. Yeah, I like that. I like that. I really like the hopeful vision. You know, I, I say frequently on this this program I, the referencing the Baldwin achieving our country that like either we can decide it's not possible or it's possible. And the only way that we're going to make it possible is when people come together to dedicate themselves to achieving our country. So I think it's really Amen. like a, a great vision. I wonder if you're, you know, we're getting close to Hanukkah, and I wonder if you have, would would close us out with some sort of, you know, reflection on Hanukkah for this year, and and uh, if there's any sort of um, offering for our listeners who who may be Jewish or or maybe you know everyone needs a blessing. So uh, absolutely, do you have a, do you have a Hanukkah uh, thought or anything? Absolutely. Um... One of my favorite Midrashim, uh, rabbinic stories about Hanukkah is uh, they tell a story. They tell the story that when Adam, the first human being, first experienced winter, he noticed that the days were getting shorter and that the nights were getting longer, and it kept increasing, and more and more darkness and less and less light, and he thought that the world was ending, right? He thought like, this is it, where I'm going to be swallowed up by the darkness and creation is unraveling and we're going to go back to chaos. He prayed. I'm trying to remember whether uh, he lit candles at that, at that moment. And the solstice came, of course, and then the days started getting longer and things started kind of moving in reverse. And he realized that Oh, this is this is just how the world works. We have cycles of increasing darkness and then increasing light. And the rabbis identify that as sort of the primordial roots of Hanukkah. So that huh. that's what I think about is like there's so many reasons to despair. There's so many times where we feel like, gosh, things are just going in a horrible direction, either for our society or maybe in my personal life. And just that act of like lighting candles, increasing candles. And we see that in Christmas too, right? Like I love when all the, although people like put up their lights everywhere. To me, it's just a great act of faith, faith in a, in a way of like assurance that, you know, there's going to be light again. And like, uh -huh. here's where we are. And, you know, we're going to move back to something better. Rev, I thank you so much for joining me on State of Belief and for all your wisdom that you've shared today. I look forward to having you back on the show. Thanks so much, Paul. It's been a real pleasure. We need to take a quick break, but I'll talk more about this urgent topic with Isaac Luria of the Nathan Cummings Foundation. And later, SCOTUS's disruptive 2022 year with Katie Joseph and Elizabeth Reiner Platt director of the Law, Rights, and Religion Project at Columbia University. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, brought to you by Interfaith Alliance. Find out more about State of Belief and Interfaith Alliance at stateofbelief.com. 911, what's your emergency? America's healthcare system is broken and people are dying. Welcome to Code Whack where we shine a light on America's callous healthcare system, how it hurts us, and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Brenda Gazar. This time on Code WAC. How are Medicare Advantage plans riskier than traditional Medicare? 
And how are such plans affecting the shrinking Medicare trust fund? To find out, we spoke to Dr. Ed Weisbart, a retired family physician, former chief medical officer of Express Scripts, and a national board member of Physicians for a National Health Program. Don't be tricked. That's probably the most important thing is that, you know, there's these very attractive ads on TV and, you know, countless pieces of direct mail that we're all getting. And they don't even necessarily say their Medicare Advantage. You know, they'll just say, look, you can get these extra things with Medicare. Look at the extra benefits. All you have to do is sign up here. And you may not even know that what you're looking at is what we've been talking about. When somebody wants to give you something for nothing, they're probably tricking you. They're probably tricking you. <laughs> and, and that's the case with this. So the first thing is to, if you, if you get one of those brochures in the mail, or if you see you know, one of the ads on TV promoting Medicare Advantage, know that you're giving up the most precious, wonderful insurance in the entire country. You don't want to give up traditional Medicare. It's the only insurance I know of where you can go to almost every doctor and hospital anywhere in the country. Uh, and if you buy a supplement with virtually no co-pays and co-insurance and no, you know, no financial risk, you can just think about your health. So the one thing I want people to really know, uh, don't be deceived by Medicare Advantage plans. The full Code Wax story on ProgressiveVoices.com and on the PV app. Catch all our episodes by subscribing to Code Wax wherever you find your podcast. This podcast is powered by Heal California, a nonprofit that uplifts the voices of those fighting for healthcare reform around the country. Until next time, stay healthy. Hey, it's Stephanie Miller. Here's what we're talking about. Trump fell prey to a trap designed to make Trump's life miserable by having him share a meal with uh, neo-Nazi Nick Puentes at Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> Puentes took the telegram to call that report fake news. Yee's political advisor, Milo Yiannopoulos, has grown illusion, disillusioned with Trump and said he was the architect of the dinner trap. Does anyone care no. which Nazi is lying? No. <laughs> Find the Stephanie Miller Show every Monday through Friday at 9 to noon Eastern, 6 to 9 Pacific, right here on Progressive Voices. This is State of Belief Radio on the Progressive Voices Network. Welcome back to State of Belief Radio. I'm Paul Rauschenbusch. Isaac Luria is Program Director at Nathan Cummings Foundation, supporting multi-faith and Jewish social justice efforts. And he's here to continue the conversation on the surge in anti-Semitism. Isaac, thanks for being with us on State of Belief. Brilliant to be here. Thank you, Paul. I think um, every one of my cousins, uh, relatives, friends, neighbors uh, who is Jewish is experiencing this differently. And I'm just wondering if you can start by talking personally about how you're feeling. Yeah. Thank you, Paul. And I appreciate that opening. I was thinking about this conversation and, you know, every time I talk about anti-Semitism with folks, I, I always want to have a historical perspective and acknowledge the incredible pain that has happened uh, to Jews over the course of millennia due to anti-Semitism. Uh, the murders, um, the uh, pogroms, uh, the forced leaving from places we had lived for generations, the betrayal of communities that we had lived in, uh, and the ways in which that uh, oppression over generations has affected us and who we are and who we are allowed to be today. Uh, that trauma lives in our bones. Uh, it is present every day, um, like many other communities who have had trauma uh, throughout generations. And today I feel it because I am 
experiencing the not just a surge in anti-Semitic incidents, but the normalization of ideas of anti-Semitism uh, that are extremely dangerous, not only to Jews, but to the possibility of a multiracial democratic uh, society here in the United States. So yeah. thank you for that opening. And I appreciate being here, being able to talk with you and, and your listeners about it. Well, I think what you said is, you know, the normalization, almost the permission granted uh, in, in to give, you know, uh, have this be a conversation that seems to um, lack a certain sensitivity, lack a certain awareness of just what you're talking about, just why this is landing in a certain way. And so I just really I think it's so important for people to hear what you just said is that this is this is centuries of yeah. uh, experiencing this um, people in living memory and many of them still living experiencing the Holocaust, which is not up for debate. But in in some circles, there is right. uh, there are people who would rather erase it. And uh, and so this is, you know, this is something that I think people have to realize is the way this is landing for their Jewish neighbors. And um, I'm just wondering if, you know, I, I don't want to put you on the spot, but like for you, I mean, you're you're married to a rabbi. You have mm -hmm. children. You're you know, you're also just a, my experience of you as a as a person, as a colleague, as a friend is that you're a family man. And <laughs> and, that you know, I mean, in the best sense of the word, you know, yeah. and and I think that there's one thing for, you know, for for people to walk around as, as themselves. But then as family people, you you carry around a whole nother set of concerns. And so, you know, I don't want you to put you talk about anything that you don't want to talk about, but I do think that's really also important. This is not just about mm -hmm. individuals. It's about families and family communities. Yes. And it's about, uh, so clearly because I am who I am and my kids listen to the radio with me <laughs> in the car, like we, we end up having conversations about anti-Semitism and what it will be like for them as Jewish people here in America um, you know, they're social justice kids, you know, they they know that uh, they want to fight racism, they support Black Lives Matter, they support LGBTQ rights. Um, and uh, for uh, to see anti-Semitism as a part of that feels like natural to them. Right. Mm -hmm. They're they're like the folks who don't like me because I'm gay also don't like Jews. Uh, the folks who don't uh, uh, support Black Lives Matter are also uh, the folks, you know, out here with white nationalist banners saying that Jews shall not replace us. So they, they, there's a way in which they, they have a natural understanding of these things intersecting, um, which I wish I could claim <laughs> uh, some kind of credit for that as a dad doing political education in the house. But honestly, it's the, it's the, it's what's been happening in the world uh, that is showing us this anew. One difficult conversation that I that I want to see if you want to engage mm -hmm. is um, there has been what what seems to me an over. I'm just going to say this, and I'm not sure if I really what I really think about it, but let's go. A lot of yeah, attention, a lot of attention paid to yeah. Kanye West, 
right. uh, Irving and other and black leaders who have who have, you know, they've definitely been doing terrible anti-Semitic things. But in some ways that has reinforced a kind of conflict. And again, I think it goes back to this wider mm-hmm. framework that you just articulated. Oh, let's make this about black and Jews instead of actually a broader story about a nation. And so I just am curious how you, a racial analysis, and in future shows, um, Rabbi Sandra Lawson and other black Jews are going to come on and talk to us about that. So I think, you know, this is just the beginning of that conversation. But but I do want to, I want to name it because there's been, with me, an unease in some of the ways this has been framed. Yes, I think that's a really important point and one that uh, when you really step back, you can see that it has been easier in the media and in the public to attack black people over their anti-Semitic statements than it has been to hold white leaders to account. Um, With political power, with the ability to change policies in this country, uh, Kanye West, let's er, yay or whatever, like we can say a lot about him, but he is, um, he's a jokester. Like he's not in political power. He has some narrative power in some communities, um, but it's not serious. Donald Trump hosted a white nationalist who has openly uh, anti-Semitic beliefs and denies the existence of the Holocaust at his home. The man's running for president has a potential to win. He was a former president of the United States. These are different things. And I think the reason that this is possible is because these are black folks and not white people in power. Um, And I'm going to call out part of my community because I think it's important to acknowledge that it has been easier for many white Jewish institutions to levy accusations against the black community around anti-Semitism than to hold Republican politicians to account. And I think part of that is about power, right? Like who has power, what can you say in public and what can you cannot say in public? And part of that I think has to do with a misunderstanding of how important uh, having a racial analysis in the way we confront anti-Semitism really is. And um, I hope that white Jewish institutions, sort of the alphabet soup that shows up in DC, uh, ADL, AGC, others, will continue to you know get smarter about this. Uh, because there is a kind of alienation of our allies, um, you know, black, brown, other folks, and including Jews of color in our community that happens when we do that. And and we can be better on this. We can do yeah, better. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think long-term strategy and just the well-being of our country requires it. Um, and, uh, and, and for, for I, I, and also to acknowledge that there has been a, a an extraordinary response from the black community condemning all of these things and uh, yeah, uh, the, these actions. Exactly. And so, but, but, uh, you know, you're almost like, okay, so let's give them uh, all the folks who have, have been stepping up from all sides uh, condemning all of this. Yeah. Let, let me, let me, um, as you know, as we kind of close out, um, I know that you're like super smart about, uh, um, kind of social media, Twitter. I don't know if you're like as active on Twitter, but you were like, you know, you were, <laughs> this has been, this is part yeah. of your life. There was yeah. part of your life. I'm just curious, like, let's take this online for a second and see like, what do, what do we, um, 
what how are you seeing kind of the Elon Musk conversation and yeah but but more broadly it's not just about Twitter it's like you know how things show up online and how that can lead to actual actual you know violence offline I mean this is right. not unrelated right yeah I mean I I don't want to go back and cite all the studies but that show us how uh, social media in particular Twitter. Uh, have accelerated trends of radicalization, um, but they do that. Uh, and those trends of radicalization are happening uh, all over, but it, particularly in white nationalist communities where an echo chamber is very important, especially because a lot of these views are considered noxious by the larger society. Elon Musk's sort of wandering into a conversation about how media might uh, make authoritarian politics more palatable and making some really ridiculous, you know, moves to like just open up the floodgates in the name of free speech. It, it's um, it, it's not substantial and it's quite dangerous. Mm. How can people show up right now? I would mm. say both, you know, both Jews and non-Jews in order to really, you know, effectively confront anti-Semitism. I think if you're the kind of person that has relationship with Jews that m is meaningful to you and you can feel comfortable reaching out and saying, how are you doing? That's always great. Different Jews have different ways that they like to be supported, just like all people, right? So uh, sort of being a listening ear, showing up for them personally is helpful. I think all of us have different or many of us have different relationships with institutions in our lives, whether it's church or a political organization, or um, you know, a place that we give money, and uh, these are places where anti-Semitism can show up. So we have a way that we can learn, right? We can have speakers from our community. We can deepen community connections. Uh, taking the opportunity to 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 encourage that kind of conversation in your community is a good idea. And and the last thing, I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, the majority of Religious people in this country are Christians. So let's just speak to Christians um, for a moment, which is to say, like, there is a particular strand of white Christian nationalism present right now in our politics that is growing in strength, and it must be confronted by the Christian community and the white Christian community specifically. Um, I can't say much to that growing group of people. Right. Like I'm, I'm their enemy, but my allies can um, and they can do so because it's not the gospel they believe in. They can do so for real rooted interests in their own community and because it will make a meaningful difference in the lives of my community and my family. Isaac Luria is a program director at Nathan Cummings Foundation, supporting multi-faith and Jewish social justice efforts, and a former colleague of mine at Auburn Seminary. Isaac, thank you for being part of this important and urgent conversation. Thank you. Love you, Paul. Thanks for thanks Love for you this. too, Isaac. We need to take one last break and then reviewing the year at the Supreme Court with attorneys Liz Platt and Katie Joseph. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, brought to you by Interfaith Alliance. State of Belief Radio, twice every weekend on the Progressive Voices Network. Hey, it's Stephanie Miller. Here's what we're talking about. 
Does anyone care no. which Nazi is lying? No. <laughs> no. Like, no. Oh my they're god. Just, they're all they're all different levels of horrendous. Of awful. And, yes. And yeah, they're turning yeah. on and each other. Yeah. We were saying before. You know, wouldn't it be great if this was the thing that finally did him in? But we've been down this road many times before. Charlottesville, Helsinki, January 6th. The Republicans line up and condemn, just like Mitch McConnell did yesterday, just like he did right after January 6th. And then suddenly it's back to business as usual for the Republican Party, which is constantly circling the wagons around January 6th. So Milo is, just to finish, is apparently Kanye's campaign manager. And said, everybody, me included, loves Trump and wants 2016 Trump back. That still won't be enough to authentically be, uh, 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 but at least would make the journey more interesting. So I just literally fight, fight, fight. Big bag of Nazi rats. Yeah, yeah. Milo is the driver of the clown car. That's I don't think that's something to brag about. Is he still straight? Look at me. Yeah. Oh, that's right. He turned straight. <laughs> oh, did he? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And by the way, I, I watched a Nick Fuentes video yesterday where he was talking about how uh, all sex is gay sex. Oh, Straight is sex is gay sex. If gay sex is gay sex, of course. And you're doing it right. All, you're doing it the right. Only, yeah. The only straight way to be is to be an incel, which calls to question, doesn't he know the first syllable of that is stands for involuntary? Yes. Yeah. You're supposed to involuntarily be yes. celibate if you want to be an incel. I don't, it's all very confusing to me. I'm oh. just, I'm catching up to speed with Nick Fuentes's sexual logic doesn't you, make any sense. Uh, oh, so, God. That's, that that, yeah, that's, 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 that's your own I, fault. I, I just, phrase, I'm hearing that come out again. of my mouth and I'm going, boy, I wish I could stuff that back in. Yeah. Yes. Find the Stephanie Miller Show every Monday through Friday at 9 to noon Eastern, 6 to 9 Pacific, right here on Progressive Voices. You're listening to State of Belief Radio on the Progressive Voices Network. Welcome back to State of Belief Radio. I'm Paul Rauschenbusch. This week, the Supreme Court heard arguments on 303 Creative v. Elenis that was about whether a website designer has the right to refuse same-sex couples in designing their wedding websites. There were also other critical cases impacting the practice of religious freedom. So I wanted to take some time with recent cases as well as looking back throughout 2022 with the Supremes. And here to help us with that is Elizabeth Reiner-Platt, director of the Law, Rights, and Religion Project at Columbia Law School, and my colleague, Interfaith Alliance Director of Policy and Advocacy, Katie Joseph. Liz, Katie, welcome to State of Belief Radio. Thanks Thanks so so much, Paul. Just on Monday, we've heard some of the arguments that happened in 303 Creative. And I I wonder, Liz, if you would mind kind of telling us what you heard that uh, in the arguments and and how how you see religious freedom and religious expression being framed in this particular case. Well, I think as we expected, there is a lot of questions around how how broad are we talking about when we're talking about this exemption based on free expression. Uh, there are uh, hypos involving interracial couples, religious minorities, people with disabilities. And I think that speaks to a real concern about maintaining our long history of civil rights law and the recognition that it's civil rights law that has allowed for a pluralistic society for people, including people of faith, and a real concern that creating broad 
speech or First Amendment exceptions from anti-discrimination law could really blow open the door to a new era of, of legal segregation in a way that I think would harm in some respects the thing that this case was purported to protect, which is the beliefs of people of faith. This case is unlike a lot of other disputes that we've seen the Supreme Court take up in at the intersection of religious freedom and equal treatment under the law. So this website designer, her name is Lori Smith. She has a successful web design business based in Colorado. She doesn't currently create wedding websites, but she's thinking about expanding her business. Um, And so the state of Colorado has a public accommodations law that prohibits businesses that are open to the public from discriminating against certain groups of people based on status. What I mean by status is membership in a particular group, sexual orientation, religious identity, gender, disability, etc. So Lori Smith, with the backing of Alliance Defending Freedom, is looking to expand her business to begin designing wedding websites, um, but she would like to be able to pick and choose which members of the public she's willing to design those websites for. To be clear, no same-sex couple has approached Lori Smith and asked her for a custom wedding website. She is a devout conservative Christian who believes that marriage should be between one man and one woman and has expressed that she is seeking a preliminary, uh, what might be called an advisory opinion um, from the Supreme Court, giving her permission to turn potential same-sex couples away. What's interesting here is that um, she's making this claim not as a matter of her religious freedom rights, which she raised at the lower court level. The Supreme Court is hearing this as a free speech right. Um, She is claiming that these custom wedding websites are an expression of her speech and therefore um, to abide by the expectations of any other business in the state to not discriminate against customers would actually be a violation of her free speech rights. Yeah. Of course, the case of Dobbs has really transformed our nation. I, I'm just wondering, maybe you, we can use this moment for you to talk a little bit about the, the center you run at Columbia University and some of the the work that you've been doing, and then apply that a little bit to helping us understand the implications of of Dobbs and reproductive rights going forward. Yeah, absolutely. So I direct the Law, Rights, and Religion Project at Columbia Law School. We are a law and policy center that advocates for religious liberty and pluralism, and we're based at the Center for Gender and Sexuality Law. So we do quite a bit of work on the intersection of religious liberty and LGBTQ and reproductive rights. So uh, we do original research and reports, we do amicus briefs. So to backtrack just a second, we did a really wonderful amicus brief in 303 Creative that Interfaith Alliance uh, actually signed. And it was on behalf of 30 uh, Christian, Muslim, Hindu, Sikh, interfaith uh, groups um, on the implications of the decision for religious minorities in particular. And and we've been doing a lot of thinking of late about this intersection between religious liberty and abortion rights, and to what extent uh, folks, uh, the the ban on abortion um, violates rights under uh, religious liberty and or the Establishment Clause. So we did a a analysis of the long history of uh, religious liberty challenges 
to um, abortion restrictions going back to the days prior to Roe v. Wade even, and we released that report uh, in, in August, and are continuing to watch closely as cases are filed and, and trickle in across the country um, from people who uh, feel like their um, religious obligations are being stifled by uh, these incredibly restrictive bans on abortion. Um, Katie, what are some other cases from the last year or the last calendar year um, that that feel like important to highlight around religious freedom and democracy cases that came before the Supreme Court that that we should really flag for people's memories? Because I think sometimes it happened a long time ago, but things that get decided whenever have implications going forward. What are some other cases that come to mind this year? One case that I continue to be shocked by, particularly in looking at the majority opinion that was written by Justice Gorsuch, is the Kennedy v. Bremerton case. Um, and this was a case out of Washington concerning a football coach at a public school who developed a practice of a uh, word of prayer kneeling at the 50-yard line at the conclusion of a football game. Um, and to tell Coach, Ken to hear Coach Kennedy tell it, this was a private, quiet expression um, when he was off duty. Um, but as community members um, and photos and videos show, as he developed this practice, gatherings at the 50-yard line grew larger and larger. He was joined by students, community members, state legislators, and eventually media. Um, and the school district of Remerton, Washington, chose not to renew his contract um, after providing him alternative ways to still engage in, in this private religious expression without um, kind of putting pressure on student members of the football team to join in a religious activity um, that they were uncomfortable with. Um, the coach declined those accommodations, um, and so he didn't return, um, but he sued, um, making, making the case that um, this was an attempt to restrict his, his religious rights um, in, his, in his capacity, um, in his former employment with the school district. He lost at the lower court level again and again, um, but when the case finally made it to the Supreme Court, um, a majority of the justices took Coach Kennedy's recounting of the events at face value and characterized this, yes, as a private moment of prayer. Um, and we saw in the, in the majority opinion no mention of the effect that this might have on students, on football players who are looking to their coach for a college recommendation or as a trusted adult in their lives um, who might feel pressured or even coerced by an authority figure to participate in, in religious expression at a public school. This is really concerning to me because we're seeing how public schools are becoming these increasingly contested spaces, particularly um, for students who are members of various minority groups, religious minorities, um, LGBTQ plus students, non-religious students, um, who are seeing their own identities and experiences um, politicized by adults in their lives um, and within the, the broader um, political environment. So 
I'm still thinking about the decision in Kennedy v. Bremerton, both because the decision really doesn't match up with the facts on the ground and because I'm always aware of what it might feel like to be that student in the classroom who has to decide whether they will join their teacher in a moment of prayer. Oh, the crazy thing for me as a minister, as a, you know, as a Baptist minister, why on earth would parents, would anybody want to subject their students, their kids to someone who they don't know, leading their kids in prayer and actually like outsourcing like religious education and religious like spiritual leadership to someone who you don't know. I mean, it's, it's terrible. It's terrible as like religious leadership have no, who knows what he's saying? You know, you don't, you know, you don't know. And so the, the idea that this is anti-religion is, is nutso. I mean, because you're actually outsourcing to someone who has power over your kids and can influence your kids. It's very dangerous. I mean, not only because like, you know, who wants to be forced to do that? As someone who's played sports growing up, your coach is really important, you know, and, and you have a, like, it has an elevated status, a very, and they make decisions about where you fit. I mean, you know, whatever you're playing, like, you know, who's first, who's second. So anyway, yeah, uh, yeah. Okay. So we have three, like, really, you know, I mean, those are three cases. Liz, do you have any other cases that you feel are really important to mention uh, from this year? Or is that the trilogy? The, I mean, the, the court took so many religion cases this year, we couldn't possibly cover them all. One, if I could just cheat a little and go just just passed into late 2021, that a uh, case that I think was really overshadowed by Dobbs, but I think it's really important to keep top of mind is all the SB8 cases. This is about um, Texas's uh, legislation that sought to essentially overrule Roe v. Wade um, without actually overturning Roe v. Wade. It had banned uh, nearly all abortion in the state um, and then had this kind of bizarre enforcement mechanism where it had private yes. citizens enforcing the law rather than the government as sort of a workaround. It, it, it worked. It barred almost all abortion in the state um, when Roe v. Wade was at that time still ostensibly on the books. And the court um, allowed this ridiculous scheme to go in effect, uh, banning abortion in the state of Texas long before Dobbs. And I think it's just such an important case to remember because it just absolutely upends our constitutional system. Um, even Justice John Roberts, by no means a friend to abortion rights, um, was the, the, wrote the dissent and said, you know, this is not how we decide constitutional issues. We don't let states just overturn constitutional rights without even hearing the case. And so I think that that is just a, a really important case to remember, um, yeah. even though it, it, as I said, was kind of soon overshadowed by Dobbs. Yeah. Liz and Katie, I want to thank both of you so much for kind of giving us a, a little bit of a year of, in review of, of the Supreme Court and and also giving us a taste of where we can go from here. So thank you both so much for joining uh, us on State of Belief. Great to be here. Thank you. And with that, I'm afraid that's all the time we've got for this week's show. We need your help keeping this show on the air, and we hope that you'll consider being a partner in this crucial work by making a financial contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. 
And you can also be part of making sure informative and encouraging voices like these are heard by sharing this program with family and friends. Let's get more people listening and more people taking part in these conversations both on and off the air. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the weekly State of Belief podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And join the conversation. Follow us at Facebook and Twitter at State of Belief and share State of Belief with the people in your life. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week. I can't wait. And until then, I'm Paul Rauschenbusch, and this is State of Belief. I think it's time we stop, children. What's that sound? Everybody look what's going down.